Hey guys, thanks for checking out today's message. We're so glad that you joined us. We consider resources like this one to be supplemental. So if you do not have a church home and live in the greater Savannah area, we would love to invite you to one of our locations. If you're blessed by today's message and would like to invest into the life and ministry of City Church, you can do so by visiting citychurch.life and clicking give. Our hope is that you'll be blessed and encouraged as we dive into today's message. We're in our second week of a series that we have entitled Loneliness, Lust, Love, and Taxes. And uh, I know that you're just like wondering, what does taxes have to do with all of this? You will have to be here on week four to find out. Uh, No spoilers uh, will be given from the platform on this one. But today we're going to be talking about lust. So last week we tackled the topic of loneliness and how that we have to learn how to be patient in loneliness. We have to be the types of people who are okay with those moments or those seasons where we feel like there isn't anybody else around us or we feel like that maybe we're going at something all alone. Uh, And so today I want to talk about control in lust. And uh, I hope to kind of challenge maybe some of our ideas on lust today. Uh, but also uh, maybe even put some challenges in our hearts on uh, how we control the desires that we have. So if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, uh, this is Jesus. He's preaching uh, his first sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I I specifically am starting here on a topic of lust, and I'm going to try to tie this together. Uh, I've gone through this several times in my mind and on paper, trying to figure out what's the best way to connect the dots. So uh, hopefully uh, you'll follow with me here and and catch on to where I'm going. Uh, So Jesus is making this statement, okay? And this is not like, hey, here's an idea, something that might work. This is really more of an emphatic uh, declaration, okay? So uh, you can take this little, this little nugget of truth and you can put this one in your heart because it is a reality. And it says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied and they are blessed. So if you're in your life and you're looking for blessing, you're looking for fulfillment, uh, Jesus says that if you'll hunger and thirst after righteousness, you'll find that. Now, Kind of the, the conundrum of this type of, uh, of, of, of language is that how is it that righteousness becomes something that we drink or something that we eat? And the truth is that uh, both of these ideas of hunger and thirst are, are not exclusive in their defining to uh, simply being, you know, eating something or drinking something. So uh, the idea of thirst or thirsting after something, okay, has a couple of additional definitions. So thirsting is the one that we're going to focus on today. And uh, of course, if you're thirsty, that means most of the time that you want something to drink. You've been uh, outside working hard in August in Savannah for five minutes and you're thirsty, right? Okay, it doesn't take much and you're parched and you need something to drink. Uh, I was actually writing this message sitting at my desk in the back and, and, and just got a picture of my desk and I had a can of LaCroix, I had a cold brew from Blue Door and I had a, uh, a bottle of sparkling water from uh, Whole Foods and they were all open and I realized that I'm just sitting here like flipping around which one I'm drinking out of. Uh, I, I don't know if you're like that, but I, I love to have something to drink and I'm always doing that. At home, uh, I buy the Deer Parks and they're uh, the sparkling Deer Parks and I keep them in the fridge and then I will put them in the freezer for about 15 or 20 minutes. And I, I don't know if you've ever done this little random rabbit trail here, but, but if you put something like that in the, in the freezer and you have to, I mean, the timing is spot on. Um, There's a point where you'll pull it out and it'll be liquid, it'll be crystal clear, and then all of a sudden from the top, it will begin to turn to ice. 
Have you ever seen this? And so every time that happens in the house, I start yelling and the kids come running because we're just amazed to watch it. You're not following me, but you should try it, all right? So, so but I love to have my, my drink. Uh, I don't just like to have something to drink. I like to have it and I like to have it as cold as I can have it without it just being like an ice cube. Uh, in fact, I will even sometimes if we're traveling, I'll throw some in the freezer, let them get solid and then take them with me and throughout the day as they thaw out, I'll drink them. Uh, because they're sparkling, uh, sometimes they can kind of uh, create a little bit of a, a explosion. So I have been known to leave a, a can of sparkling water in the freezer and it explode. Uh, thankfully, it's just water, so it's easy to clean up. In fact, we were in Washington, D.C. back during the summer, and I had taken one of the plastic bottles of Deer Park, frozen it, knew we were going to be walking around, and we were walking down the street, and then all of a sudden we heard what sounded like a gunshot, and we all froze, and Carmen was like, what was that? And I was like, I don't know. I can't tell where it was coming from. And she said, well, it hit me in the back. And I was like, hit you in the back? What are you talking about? And the bottle, as it was thawing, exploded. It was in her backpack. And uh, so she literally felt like the, 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 the push of it. And, uh, and it's all slushy at that moment. You know what I'm talking about? So my kids all thought they were getting a slushy. So they were all digging into it and trying to eat it. And we were trying to clean up. Uh, but but I, I enjoy having something to drink. Uh, maybe you're like that. But the idea of thirsting doesn't just exclusively come down to hydration. Um, uh, currently, I, I discovered that there is a slang version of being thirsty that describes a graceless need for approval, affection, or attention, one so raw that it creeps people out. Uh, so uh, maybe uh, when I said thirsty, that's what came to mind. Uh, sometimes I, I use the wrong word. I have used words before from the platform that uh, some people have told me were profanity uh, and I did not know them as profanity or I have used them thinking they meant one thing and then it turned out they meant something completely different. Has anybody lived long enough to have that happen to a word, right? Where it's like you're just saying the word and you're just like, oh, this is what this means. Um, in fact, uh, Isaac was, my oldest son was talking uh, about something one day that uh, I understood it to mean like uh, being high on drugs or totally wasted. And uh, for him, it just meant like it was happening. It was awesome. And so he said that he was, I don't even remember what the word was. He's not in here. Lit. Yes, lit. So when I was a, in high school, lit meant you were wasted. And Isaac was like, I'm so lit right now. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, no, sir. Like, we're, who's giving this stuff to you? What's going on? And he was like, what are you talking about, Dad? Like, like it's just things are awesome. And I was like, okay, all right, very cool. <laughs> I'm relevant, except I'm not <laughs> sometimes, right? And so then another definition here, and this is the one I want to focus on, is a want and eager desire after anything, all right? And so to thirst uh, it can also mean to uh, want or to have a eager desire after something. In fact, what's interesting is that this definition uh, is actually uh, one of the definitions for the Greek word that thirst comes from. So when we're reading through the New Testament, this idea of being thirsty can actually there mean to hydrate yourself, but it also can mean to desire something. And, and so with that in mind, I want to take a look at uh, maybe some ideas of what it looks like to have that thirst quenched based on what the word of God says. So uh, the, the reality is this, you will thirst after something. You'll be thirsty at some point in your life, uh, both from the idea of wanting something to drink as well as being passionate or having a desire uh, to have something. This is just a reality that we're all going to step into. In fact, we all are on some level in that place at all times. Now, uh, uh, I told you that today's about lust, and so I was looking at the definition of lust, and I thought that it was kind of interesting what we find when we look at uh, lust, and I know immediately kind of the the idea that comes to mind around uh, sexual desire, but uh, one of them is a passionate desire for something. It's not exclusively 
a sexual desire, but here it says that it is a passionate desire for something. Uh, I don't know why they're both saying number one, it's a formatting error, uh, but the other definition was a very strong sexual desire. So again, when we talk about lust and we talk about the idea of lusting after something, I would say that almost exclusively the, the definition that comes to mind is a strong sexual desire uh, but lust at its root actually births out of this idea of a passionate desire for something. So just like with thirst, like we can, we, can, we can literally be at a place where we want something to drink, we want to quench that thirst, but also it is this picture of desiring, eagerly wanting something, lust falls into the same category. And so uh, the idea here is that when we are lusting after something, we are really thirsty and we're figuring out a way to quench a thirst that really sets deep inside of us. So Genesis 39 is a really interesting story about a young man named Joseph. Now, uh, if you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, Joseph uh, was born uh, into a large family with many brothers and he had a dream. And in that dream, he sees his brothers kneeling before him and he wakes up really excited over a bowl of uh, Cheerios the next morning and tells all of them, hey, I had this dream one day, you're all bowing before me. And that was not their favorite idea. And so they took him and sought to kill him, uh, but through the convincing of one of the brothers decided, hey, we will just sell him into slavery and we'll tell dad that he is dead. And this is what they do. And so Joseph ends up in Egypt in slavery and he's working in this man named Potiphar's house as a slave. And Potiphar's wife sees that Joseph is good looking. This is what the scripture says. And she desires to have Joseph. So she has a thirst, a lusting inside of her uh, for Joseph. And Joseph now is uh, a young man who does not understand why his life has taken the direction that it's taken. Uh, Joseph, though, is really for, for us as believers a really great picture of what it can look like to be in a place of devastation and a place of hardship and still rely on the Father. And so his life is, this, is just this picture of saying, God, why am I here? Why is this happening? Even so, I'll serve you. Even so, I declare you to be my king. And so in the midst of this, Joseph has an opportunity to be able to uh, fulfill any desire for intimacy that he might have in the wife of Potiphar, who is his master. In fact, even uh, uh, to the point that she shamelessly is throwing her, herself at him. And what does he do? The scripture says that he runs from her, uh, that he uh, ends up uh, leaving and that she then goes to uh, her husband because she's angry and says that he tried to make a pass at her, which lands him into prison. So he goes from slavery to jail. So uh, in the midst of obedience before God, Joseph ends up in an even more difficult place. Now, this idea of running, I, 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 want to, I want to look at that for a moment because the truth is that when we talk about being uh, uh, people who have uh, things that we desire, things that we are longing for, and specifically this, this idea of, of thirst constantly finds men and women in a position of sexual desire. It constantly rears its head that way, that, that when this happens, that there is just some wisdom from the Old Testament that when it presents itself, the best thing you can do regardless of what's going on is to just run to just get away. You don't need to make an excuse. You don't need to have some way of helping anybody understand. You need to just get away. First Corinthians chapter six in the New Testament, it says it this way, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
Now, I don't know how this breaks down. I don't know what this means. Uh, I, I don't know what the, what the uh, ramifications are, but the scripture says that when people do not flee from sexual immorality, when they engage in a type of sexual relationship that's contrary to the word of God, and, and that's a, a whole nother conversation I'm not gonna have time to get into today, but when, when that happens, uh, you aren't just uh, doing something that, is, uh, that grieves the Holy Spirit or grieves the heart of the Father. You are literally doing something that is committing, a, uh, committing damage to yourself. And it says that the best way to, 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 to handle this, the best way to, to negotiate the situation is to just simply run, flee, walk away from it. And so, so, so in my life, uh, Carmen and I, when we got married, we just set up some standards. And, and can I tell you, the standards were not, uh, it wasn't rocket science. We just looked at the lives of men and women around us who were falling and making a mess out of their lives. And we looked at the situations they allowed themselves to be in. And we said, we won't be in those situations. Uh, and it's not about thinking so highly of yourself. It is just about caring about your relationship with the Father and caring about the people that you love enough to draw some lines in the sand and say, I won't be in these environments. Uh, and so that comes down to being alone with a member of the opposite sex. That is a, a line that we drew in the sand and we have had people who have told us they think that it's ridiculous, but we have made a decision that we will not be alone with a member of the opposite sex. Uh, I had a friend when uh, I was uh, when we were living in Springfield, Missouri, in Bible college. Uh, I had left to go and pick up, I think, just a bag of ice, maybe. And he stopped by. He was having dinner, and he was early. And he knocked on the door, and uh, Carmen said, "Hey, I'm glad that you're here." Jim has run out for a moment. You can sit here on the front porch or in your car. Uh, I'll let him know that you're here and he can you know, let you in when he gets here. And he got super offended and a uh, very pouty grown man, older than me, and told me when I got there how rude that was. And I was like, tough. <laughs> I don't care. I mean, this is a standard that Carmen and I have made in our lives and it, it had served us to that point. And Carmen and I, this November, will celebrate 20 years of marriage and we haven't violated that as a rule in our marriage at 20 years. And I, I am not going to try to paint you a picture of how you know Carmen and I are perfect. I am not. She is close. And, uh, but I will tell you that Carmen and I have a really healthy marriage and we are very much in love at 20 years of marriage. Uh, I've actually known her since I was 13 years old. So do the math. That's quite a while. I've known her uh, for the majority of my life and we are able to be married and have a successful marriage because we have set these guidelines in place and we just don't violate them. And we work really hard to make sure that they are protected. So why is that? Because we are constantly in the mindset of fleeing anything that could lead to sexual immorality. We want to have lines drawn in the sand that don't just protect the people around us, but protect us ourselves. So verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. And so when we can begin to uh, negotiate in our own minds that being a child of God is a reflection of giving ourselves over to him and the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, when we become uh, 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 lackadaisical in this approach, we actually are allowing the Spirit of God to be taken into these scenarios and these situations. And so uh, Paul writing here to the church in Corinth is telling them like, do not do this, right? Think of yourself properly as a child of God and do not give over to those desires. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And I would say that that pretty much sums up this idea that when we flee sexual immorality, we are bringing glory to God. It makes him famous. And what, what better way to be a testimony to the world around us and the people that need Jesus than to glorify him by living lives that embody that which he expects. 
I have known two men in my life and I thought about this for quite a while. I've known two men who have told me that they don't know what lust is. Two men in my whole life that have said, I don't know what lust is. I don't ever have any issues with lust. I don't desire anything like that. I don't see women that way. And both of these men were pastors. And uh, I remember with both of them coming home and talking to, to Carmen and saying, this just doesn't make any sense. Uh, how, do, how does somebody get to that place? So, so this is just being kind of raw on myself that, that I don't understand that, that this idea of never having any lust creep itself into your life doesn't make sense. And I wanna be able to be fair and honest with you as your pastor to tell you that this is not something that, that, that is, a, is a reality even in my own life. And this is why I set up the standards and the boxes that I have to protect myself so that I'm not given over to the thirst. I, I don't know how to turn that off, right? I don't know where that switch is. And so I've had two men, both pastors that have talked this language, they've talked to men and and, and the, the problem for me negotiating through that type of statement is that when that gets said, uh, then I think that all of at least the men who are hearing that begin to go, uh, well, how do you get to that place? How do you get to the place where it's just not an issue? And I get it, I get it that we don't like to be honest that in, in saying that this is an issue, that it has the potential to rear its head again in your life, that it has the potential to show up again. I, I, I don't know what it's like to be uh, 60 or 70 or 80 or 90. I, I don't know if there is a day where you just wake up and all of a sudden like all desire is just dead inside of you. I'm not looking for that in my life. I'm not going to lie, you know, but, but maybe that happens. Maybe you're in here right now and you're like, oh, Pastor Jim, you just, you haven't had a colonoscopy yet. That just turns it off like it's done, you know. You're right, I haven't, you know. I, I don't know. But I do think that it's a little bit unfair to present this idea of somehow attaining this and then it being so like mysterious. How do you get there? And I'll tell you that one of those men, I, I don't know how to vouch for whether or not he genuinely was at that place, but the other man uh, was engaged in multiple affairs on his wife and was lying through his teeth, constantly up on the platform talking this garbage, and yet in the community had several women that he was cheating on his wife with. And, and so I, I, I want to paint a picture of what I believe here, and that is that the idea of thirsting and this idea of, of, of having lust in your life is not something that somehow is, becomes dead. It's something that we learn to flee from. It's something we learn to control. And that's the idea here today is how can we take control in the midst of lust? How can we take control as human beings in the midst of those moments where, where something deep inside of us is longing for something else? There's a desire and I think that we can, but I will say that it's a constant point of contention in the idea of thirsting to come back to this sexuality. It rears itself up generation after generation. It does so in the scripture. Uh, there is this story, uh, and, and I preached on this Wednesday at First Wednesday this last week of this uh, Samaritan woman, right? And uh, Jesus goes to where he knows that the Samaritans come to get water. This is a group of people that there's, a, there's, a, there's honestly a tremendous amount of racism uh, that is taking place between the Jews and the Samaritans at this time. The Jews think that anything that the Samaritans handle is, is defiled. So you would never eat something that a Samaritan handed to you. You would never drink from a, a bucket of water that a Samaritan had, uh, had drawn up 
uh, much less would you ever drink from the same cup. And Jesus uh, comes to the well and the scripture says that he's sitting there and a Samaritan woman comes during the middle of the day. So not on top of the fact that she's a Samaritan, it's the middle of the day and the people who came to the well during this time of day, the hottest portion of the day are the group of people who were embarrassed to be able to do life with everybody else. So most people came to the well early in the morning while it was cooler because it was a task to carry water back home or late in the evening when it was cooler again because of the task of carrying the water home. And yet here comes the Samaritan woman and we're not given any insight into uh, how they're able to tell that one's a Jew and one's a Samaritan. Perhaps there was some conversation that was taking place that we're not privy to, or maybe just the mannerisms of the two, the way that they're dressed. But Jesus is setting this woman up uh, in uh, the scripture, and he understands that she's not just thirsty for water, but that she has a lust for something in her life. And Jesus has the benefit of being able to have this insight in John chapter four. And so he's sitting there and he tells her, he says, hey, will you draw me something to drink from the well? And so uh, she turns to him and is like, you've gotta be kidding, right? Like you're asking me to get you something to drink. And Jesus is fully aware of what he is asking of her. Uh, Not only is he kind of being presumptuous that she would serve him, but specifically that he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. And so she uh, is a little bit confused. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, right? I mean, is there any shock to that? you've been really thirsty, you've been outside, you've been, you're sweating, you've been to the gym, whatever it is, you come in and you just, you, you take a drink of whatever's refreshing to you. In the midst of that, it's quenching the thirst, but is it quenching the thirst permanently? No, nobody thinks that I'm going to come and take a drink of this and then it's going to forever quench my thirst. We take a drink understanding that there may be a series of scenarios that take place that allow me to be at a place where I'm thirsty again. And so Jesus says that everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, okay? Samaritan woman's probably listening to him going, oh, you're really bright. This is a really bright Jewish man here. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the scripture says that this catches her attention, right? Because this is problematic already for her. She's having to come in the heat of the day out of embarrassment for some reason. She doesn't feel like she can come with everybody else to come and take the the water. And so what happens is uh, uh, she comes and she gets it. And it's just, it's it's a strenuous uh, walk of shame for her. And the idea that she could get a hold of some type of drink that forever would prevent her from having to be in this place of shame again. So, so what water could Jesus be talking about that prevents thirst forever? Now, as believers, we read through this and, and I think that we just kind of gloss over it. We just read it and we immediately, just, oh, yeah, I'm not, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about living waters. He's talking about a relationship with Christ. But just if you can just be in the place of this woman for just a moment and hearing this type of ideology presented to you for the first time, every day, walk of shame to go and get something to drink. Well, why, why is this a walk of shame? Like we're not really given any insight into why it is that she's here in the middle of the day and why Jesus is setting her up until after the fact. It says that the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I don't wanna keep coming and doing this. I don't wanna keep coming to this place and being embarrassed and being ashamed. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. Uh, In fact, she has five husbands. She's been married, she's been divorced. She is going after one sexual relationship from one sexual relationship to the next seeking out something that will fill a void inside of her. 
This, 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 this is, a, this is a, a picture too, like when we look at the way that the scripture presents Jesus uh, to the church, it is a bridegroom to a bride. Like this, this imagery is not an accident throughout scripture. It's this picture of how that we as the church find perfect fulfillment our identities made whole when we are united with Christ. And it's this picture that's given over to a husband and a wife standing in right relationship before the Lord and the type of fulfillment to the desires for intimacy that can be found within the bounds of marriage. And these desires, they don't go away. They have to be a constant part of the conversation. And so this woman coming to get something to drink encounters the living son of God who says, you're right, like you're just chasing one well after another, trying to find a place where you can go to get a drink and not be thirsty. This changes everything for her. Can, can I tell you something? Not only does coming to a place where you learn how to manage your thirst, make a change in your life, it can absolutely radically change a community. When we get honest, when we just get real and figure out how we can control those things that we thirst after in life, it can create change to the world around us. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. She goes back home and the woman who was in shame goes back and begins to testify about this living water. And what happens? Among the Samaritans, revival begins among a group of people that the Jews on principle hate. They loathe them. They want nothing to do with them. They begin to believe in Jesus. Now, I'll point you to the Great Commission, right? Jesus, in that last moment with the disciples before he ascends into heaven, he says, go into the nations, right? First into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. This is what he says. He says, listen, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to tell the people that live next door to you, the people that you're comfortable with, the people that you're willing to do life around without any effort. They're the first people to talk about Jesus. They're the first people for you to teach the principles of life to. And then before you go and find some other country with people that you get along with, you need to go to your enemies, the people that you don't like. You need to figure out how to be a minister to the Samaritans that are in your life. This wasn't like some massively long distance for them to travel. They had to buy a plane ticket or get a coach to take them. No, this was a group of people that oftentimes they just kind of ran into. A group of people that they just didn't like. And Jesus says, you need to learn how to teach these people all that I have commanded. Why? Because when they believe and their thirst is quenched and they are finding fulfillment, it changes other people's lives. The unfortunate side of this is that inside of the church and certainly outside of the church, there's just no debate on the outside of the church, but unfortunately inside of the church, we allow that thirst and that, that desire to create really dark closets and rooms in our lives. Where instead of controlling our desires, instead of using those desires to step into fulfillment and the promises and destiny that God has for us, we make excuses and we live our lives in such a way that we just keep things secret. We allow the thirst to control our testimony. We allow the thirst and the desires in our lives to control what it is that we will accomplish with our lives. 
Too many people are just seeking freedom or satisfaction in the midst of their thirst. They, their testimony is nothing more than, oh yeah, I'm free from pornography. I'm free from a lust issue. I'm free from womanizing or just, you know, giving, you know, chasing after guys or whatever it is. Like that just, that, that becomes the, like the penultimate testimony is God set me free from that. And, and there's so much more. Jesus said, you can do even greater things than I have done. The blind can see, the deaf can hear. Like, like, like we can get ourselves into such place that we are drinking and tapping into the actual well that what takes place is the miraculous. And somehow the enemy has got blinders on us to where our constant struggle in this world is sexuality instead of finding freedom. Look here in Mark chapter 15, verse 22. I wanna to point to two times that Jesus was thirsty on that walk to crucifixion. So just as a little reminder, Jesus has been beaten. Uh, most doctors uh, that I've read that, that have looked into the type of beating Jesus took suggest that the, the amount, the number of lashes that he took in the, in the whipping with the cat of nine tails probably removed the majority of the flesh from his shoulders to the very soles of his feet. That when Jesus was walking to Golgotha, that he probably did not have much flesh left on his feet. This is the type of beating that he has take, taken. Now, in the book of Matthew, it records both instances of Jesus being offered something to drink, okay? Uh, the book of Mark only mentions the first, and the book of John mentions the second. So I want to look in the book of Mark at the first, and then I want to look back at John at the second. So right here, it says, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. All right, so they come in, they know that he's gotta be thirsty after everything that he's gone through, hours of torture, hours of, uh, of, of just physical manipulation, getting to this place, he's gotta be exhausted. And they come and they offer him a wine mixed with myrrh and, they, uh, and he, did, he, he says no. And then they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. So this, this picture of this wine, the first time they come and offer it to him mixed with myrrh, this myrrh would have amplified the wines, uh, the alcohol content of the wine, right? It would have been like mixing a narcotic into it. And so this mixture uh, uh, to drink was something that was made uh, primarily by women at the time and presented to people who were about to be crucified out of pity. I, I just, I'll remind you that crucifixion was seen as being so abhorrent, so terrible that it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified, right? Now, they, 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 they loved it. They got their their jollies on crucifying people, but they did not want to think that they themselves could be crucified. And so, so people would make this mixture so that it would dull the pain. In many cases, they would become so intoxicated that they would just be crucified and already be out of their mind, not aware of what's happening. And so is there any doubt that Jesus would physically be thirsty in this moment? No, not at all but he fully understands what is about to take place. There are somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 prophecies that Jesus has to fulfill in order to be emphatically declared the Messiah. Jesus has to fulfill all of these prophecies and they're not just things that are gonna happen on accident, no, in fact, the scripture even lets us know that Jesus is aware of his responsibility to fulfill these prophecies. And so Jesus, in the midst of this torture, cannot allow his mind to be taken from him. He has a responsibility. Jesus has a destiny. Now, we go over to John 19. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. So Jesus is up on the cross, crucified. He's already said no to the, to the, uh, to the alcohol with the myrrh in it, uh, that numbing agent that would have been given. And that group of people that are sympathetic to him are gone. Now you have Roman soldiers that are at his feet. Now the Roman soldiers had spent the last hundred years perfecting crucifixion. When they went to war with the Persians and they discovered the art of crucifixion, they would crucify Persians along the way just as an experiment to see how how they could take it to the limit to keep somebody alive and fully aware to the point where they are experiencing every single moment of pain. And so they concocted a wine of their own, a liquid of their own, Uh, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. It's a completely different experience here. You see, they had uh, formulated this sour wine because what it did was instead of doling the senses, it made you more alert. It drew the process on. It kept you awake. And so in the midst of tremendous pain where somebody might black out, they would present this up into their body to keep them from falling asleep. And so Jesus, thirsting, says, I don't want that which will dull me, that which will just temporarily bring some type of disconnect. He says, just go ahead and allow me to walk through what I need to walk through. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, Of the prophecies that Jesus was able to fulfill through his own actions, this prophecy was the very last one. The other prophecies that have to be fulfilled, those things that have to come to conclusion, they all are gonna be contingent on the spirit of God doing some different things. But Jesus, having been the word, this is what John said at the beginning was that the word was in God and the word was God, the word was with God, right? Jesus was the word, Jesus comes, he's born 100% man, and what does he have to do? He has to learn the word. And so Jesus spends 30 years of his life studying the word, the written word, becoming so familiar with it that himself, being in this place, knew that he had to fulfill the scripture. He's been thirsty the entire time, but he didn't admit his thirst. He didn't declare it until it was the right moment because he was okay for his destiny to be fulfilled to walk thirsty. And instead of getting up here today and trying to convince you that there's some magic place where all of a sudden you're gonna stop desiring things, I want you to see a picture of God in the flesh, carrying a cross, bearing our shame and saying, it's not yet the moment to drink because if I drink of the wrong thing, I might miss my destiny. I might miss my purpose. I might miss that thing which God created me for. And so I have to be very careful what I quench my thirst with. Hours of torture, enduring the wrath of God and being so in tune as to remember Psalm 69, verse 20 and 21, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. One of those prophecies given by 
one of the great leaders through the Old Testament, David here, writing out, not even having a full picture of how the Messiah would fulfill these things, writing this out and Jesus being fully aware said, my destiny is to have a drink, but my destiny is not to have one that doles me out and pulls me away from all that I was created for and purposed for in this life. Let's stand to our feet as we close today. Thirst is very powerful. Last Sunday after church, I I got home and uh, uh, was just reading through my news feed real quick. And there was a uh, news story uh, on a, uh, about a, uh, I guess maybe a documentary or something along those lines about the, the, the largest shark attack in U.S. history. And uh, this took place during uh, one of the world wars. And uh, uh, right after we had bombed uh, Japan, so this would have been World War II, uh, one of our uh, ships was, one of the U.S. ships was out at sea and a uh, Japanese ship found it and sunk it. And you had, uh, if I remember correctly, just over 900 soldiers who ended up in the water. And uh, in the midst of that happening, uh, a shark frenzy happened and uh, in that first night uh, the sharks came and they had taken those people who uh, had already died in the process of the ship sinking and so you had hundreds and hundreds of them that of these soldiers who were they were binding themselves together and they were trying to figure out how to survive and anybody who was not with a group was kind of being picked off is what the soldiers say and uh, word had spread that we had lost contact with this ship and so they were flying planes up and down the, the, the area where they were last reported to be and finally they see the wreckage and they see all these men in the water and uh, it's an interesting story because uh, whoever the, the admiral over that group was got in a plane and came to fly over and drop supplies to them because it was still, uh, you know, probably 13, 14 hours, if I remember correctly, until they were going to get rescued. And he saw the sharks attacking. And so uh, they made a movie out of this in the 60s, I think. Uh, and he landed. Uh, the the seaplane that he was in and he had soldiers with rifles standing on the sides and he had the pilot flying or driving the the plane in the water back and forth shooting the sharks shooting the enemy that was attacking so in the midst of this right okay they've been in the water for two days being attacked by sharks uh, nothing to eat nothing to drink you had another group of men right you had another group of men who gave over to their thirst and began to drink the salt water and so I think it was something somewhere in the 60s that's how many people were attacked by sharks it's what makes it the largest uh, shark attack in, in U.S. history maybe world history but that wasn't what got the majority of the men was that they gave over to their thirst knowing that the salt water would not sustain them but instead do them harm and hurt them that killed the majority of those men they allowed their thirst to set a path that determined their destiny I can't imagine I can't imagine how thirsty you have to be after two days at sea floating in the water having your friends drug away by an enemy. But I can make you a promise that if you drink the wrong thing, it just doesn't matter. If you tap in and 
try to find fulfillment in the wrong thing. It just doesn't matter. Everything can be taken. How will you quench your thirst? Let's bow our heads for just a moment. A very real and present threat in our lives, lust is. Desire is. I want to end today by just giving you an opportunity How are you managing the thirst that's inside of you? somebody they're struggling with their own inadequacies their own desires their own needs for intimacy they just they just they're not being honest I pray that today you would open up their eyes know that they're not alone, that there's no expectation for perfection, there's an expectation for relationship, there's an expectation for surrendering, that the walk to freedom could begin here and now. For those that have learned how to control this in their lives. I pray that you would cultivate opportunities for this to be a testimony. Give them opportunities to share how they got to where they're at. That others may taste water that quenches thirst permanently. Thank you for your faithfulness and your grace in your mighty name.